Today on episode number 257 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Ramesh Longani talks about how to engage students using Flipgrid. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest, Ramesh Longani, is an associate professor of biology at Doan University in Nebraska. His scientific research focuses on the impacts of both climate change and climate change mitigation strategies on grasslands. Specifically, he and his students examine how biocar additions to grassland soils can store carbon for the long term and how biocar affects grassland plant communities. During the episode, we'll be talking about a science communication project called the Thousand STEM Women Project. You'll hear more about that during the episode. And his scientific background has also allowed him to testify in front of the Nebraska State Legislature about bills concerning climate change. Education and action on climate change is a central theme across his teaching, research, and political advocacy. Ramesh, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be on the podcast. I know we have many positive things to talk about and lots of ideas people can use in their classes to engage students using asynchronous discussion. We're going to spend just a couple minutes talking about the depressing part. That is, <laughs> discussion is usually in most contexts not actually discussion. And so would you discuss about discussion and how it's, it's broken in many contexts? Yeah, you know, I think... When I think about discussion, especially in my classroom, so I teach at a small liberal arts college. I've taught classrooms of 40 at sort of the biggest. I've taught classrooms of five. And surprisingly, what happens is that whether you're in a small class or a big class, oftentimes you have a few students that are really dominating the conversation. So a lot of quiet voices are sort of drowned out, even if those quiet students have really amazing ideas. And so in my class of 40, when I'll get them to discuss, I'll get them to break into small groups, I'll walk by those groups, I'll sort of walk around the room. And even as I'm circling back past the same group, I'll hear the same two students talking in that group. In my smaller classrooms where I have five or six students, it'll be the same two students that'll be dominating the discussion of the topic at hand. And so I think one of the challenges that we face in standard discussion structures is how do we support and sort of amplify those more quiet voices? And what are the dynamics we as educators need to be aware of and cognizant of to allow for those more quiet voices to not be drowned out by the more loud, outgoing individuals? And I'm one of those loud, outgoing individuals. So I have to be very self-reflective about when am I dominating the conversation mm -hmm. too much? When am I hindering the ability of my students to actually trade ideas? One of the things that people think happens when we move these discussions online 
is that that gets completely better. But too many times we put such strict parameters around the number of replies that people have to make to discussion boards that to me, it really just becomes, I think the phrase I've heard someone use is civil engagement. And I'm not positive if that's the correct phrase, but just this idea, I'm only doing this because you told me to. I'm not actually doing it because I'm engaged because I'm interested in what we're talking about here, but it's, you told me to reply to three people, so I will reply to three people, and I will meet your little parameters, but I'm not actually interested in what we're talking about. Right, I agree with you. And I also think that, especially when we move these discussions online onto you know, discussion boards where students are typing answers, I think we miss what I like to call backspace moments. So when students are crafting a written reply to somebody's idea, that they've put up on the discussion board or an answer to a prompt that you as the instructor have put up on the discussion board, they're going to try to put their best version forward. They're Mm -hmm. going to try to put their best answer forward. And so in the moments where they're typing and then they backspace and sort of delete a thought and try to rearrange it, we never see those moments on a discussion board. And in fact, I think those are really the most ripe for exploration and ripe for unpacking. And so I think that's where that civility comes in, where the students just want to kind of get it done and they just want to write their three responses and the typed discussion board doesn't allow for discussion. It just allows for linked statements that are just physically linked by some graphical interface on on the discussion board. But there's no back and forth per se. There's no... I liked your idea because, and if it comes out a little flubbed, we never see that, right? So we just see these almost pristine answers that are almost impossible to re-engage with or re-reply to. So take us forward now to a lot more promising of a vehicle for discussion, and that is Flipgrid. Yeah, so I sort of mentioned earlier about this idea of backspace moments. I think the other thing that is lost in, in sort of the typed medium is tone and Obviously, you can't, it's hard to convey tone in, in, in text. And so Flipgrid has really, for me, I, I call it sort of my pedagogical drug of choice. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's really altered and, and changed the way that I structure discussion because it allows me to expand discussion beyond the class period. So we can start a discussion and, and then... I'll say, well, let's stop here and you guys each have to come up and so I'll come up with some parameter, right? So based on today's discussion, it seems like we're sort of still wrestling with idea X. And so now what I want you to do is go back and I want you to make a short Flipgrid video where you are trying to discuss a solution to problem X where we've ended today. And then I'd also like my students to, I'd like you to reply to someone else's solution and call them out on their solution. And what's great about Flipgrid, especially given its structure with the replies, is the students' replies are not just, again, put out into this nebulous space. It's a direct reply to somebody's idea. But since everybody can see and hear those videos and see those voices, all of the tone and all of the emphasis is really captured. And so nuances can be, again, unpacked in a way that you wouldn't find on a standard discussion board. One of the things that it seems like we both have in common with how we use Flipgrid is 
bridging from the classroom to the learning that takes place outside, but you just brought up something I have not tried yet, and that is the reply function. So I'm curious from a logistical standpoint, let's say it's a class of 40, mm-hmm. 40 students post their initial, do you find that they will tend to gravitate to reply to ones that have already had reply? I mean, how does that work for the second half of it? Do, does, do people feel left out if nobody replies to theirs? Or how, how do the logistics work there? Right, right. I will say that largely where I have found the reply function to work particularly well is in my smaller classrooms, my eight to 10 mm. person classrooms. And what happens, so my, my smaller classrooms are typically my upper level science classes. So I'm a ecologist. I teach conservation biology. And so we are constantly talking about messy topics that range from, you know, how do we think about, you know, what, what economic policy, what political, what legislation should come out of the data based on this endangered species. So there's sort of a lot of messiness in there that allows for really robust discussion that can happen both in class and out of class. With the 40-person classroom, we don't really have, we technically have had them reply to things, but you sort of hit the nail on the head, right? That ultimately, if if one student is getting a, the vast majority of the replies, ultimately that could theoretically alienate the other students. And so when we are in those classes of 40, generally the way I use Flipgrid is to allow them, allow I really use it as a mechanism for the quiet students' voices mm-hmm. to be heard mm-hmm. and for those quiet student voices to be highlighted. So in Flipgrid, there is a feature where you can star and highlight certain responses to a prompt or to a topic. And oftentimes, the voices that are highlighted are not those that are the loudest in class. And so that's how I use Flipgrid in those larger settings. It's more of a one-way almost assignment delivery system to me. And, but because everyone can see everyone else's responses, everybody can sort of look at the starred responses and and try to evaluate, well, why is, you know, Sarah's response getting a star and how does it differ from mine? We've tried to do the reply where a student has to reply to one of the starred responses and, and explain why, their response didn't get a star. That didn't work so well, <laughs> and that was happening largely at the at the. We've done that at the freshman level. So I think one of the challenges there is you're dealing with freshmen who may or may not be comfortable with being self-critical, or may or may not be comfortable articulating what the differences are. So oftentimes, those replies in the larger setting would take would take the form of, "Well, they just did it better than me." And it was hard to then have them try to unpack, well, what do you mean better? Mm -hmm. So I would say the reply function has largely worked more in the smaller classes that are at the upper level. But I do love the reply feature. And we've used it in another context to expand, to sort of knock down the walls of my classroom and connect with K-12 classrooms that I think we're going to talk about a little later. Yeah. And and before we do, I'm just going to back up in case someone hasn't used Flipgrid. You mentioned the prompt. So the question prompt can come in written form. It can come in a video link that's not even you. So it could be a YouTube video or or what have you. It yep. also could be you videoing yourself in Flipgrid to pose the question, which I tend to do that the most because if I'm asking them to put themselves on video, I think it's helpful if I am on video and then I I 
I'm not perfect. I know it's hard for people to believe. So then I'm right. mo- modeling for them that this more conversational style that it doesn't have to be perfect. So it's kind of a good thing, I think, to reinforce. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. we talked about the replies. The one feature, I'm sure there's many, many. Uh, you mentioned the starring. There, uh, there's a couple other. You can download the videos really easy if you're on a computer. And then I will often email that student and ask them if it would be okay to show their, they don't have to say yes, but to be okay to show theirs in class. And what a nice way to get the quieter students to have more of a voice and presence in class if they're comfortable with me playing it. And right. in fact, right. I've never had them say no, but I certainly they could. It just. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And then yeah, the I other, mean- the other thing that it has, which I've never used is it just came out maybe six months ago or something is that if you say you have a class, so you've You've uh, in some of your messier topics, you've got the questions that are all posed. There's also an ideas one that could not be related to one of your prompts, but just something that they want to say. And I've never had anybody use it, <laughs> and I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, I've never used it myself either. But I also have not promoted it in my yeah. classroom. It's on my to do list. You know those to do lists that just mm-hmm. get <laughs> Very shorter familiar. every day. So it's one of it's on my pedagogical to do list, but. Yeah, I think I think there are there are a ton of features that allow for that quiet student to become more visible in the classroom. I also think one of the great things about Flipgrid is that the student doesn't necessarily need to show their face on camera. Mm-hmm. So I've had a number of students that when they use Flipgrid on their cell phone, which you can via a free app, they'll just flip the camera and so all you hear is their audio. So I've had whole videos where someone is explaining a complex idea and what we see is their dog sitting <laughs> on on the on the carpet which is perfectly fine right yeah. because i think what's critical again is is that the student's voice is heard and that tone is is captured in a way that we would never get in, in other settings and the other thing that we often do like i'm a biology teacher so we will have our students explain complex biological processes on a whiteboard while they're sort of narrating. And so if there is that sort of camera shy anxiety, students will then, I think, feel a little more comfortable just, you know, having their hand show up in the frame pointing at, well, how does the cell carry out cell respiration rather than them having to be on camera? Are you ready to talk about this other exciting stuff that you do to take Flipgrid even beyond a single class to engaging K through 12 students? Absolutely. So I really understood the power of Flipgrid when I started doing this in my classroom. One of my big pushes for Flipgrid with my students, and and this is sort of a little bit of a lie, but I sort of tell them, I say, you know, after college, many to most of you will never have to write another paper again, but you are going to be ambassadors of science who are going to have conversations with your future patients, with your family members, with your kids, with your kids' teachers. And so you have to learn how to clearly articulate yourself orally. And that's why I have you do so many flip grids. And in graduate school, when I was getting my doctorate, I was part of a program that placed science and math graduate students into K-12 classrooms. And this was some of the best science communication training that I've ever received, largely because seventh graders don't care about being nice to you. Mm -hmm. 
And so if you're uninteresting, if your science is uninteresting, if the way you're communicating your science is uninteresting, they'll let you know. And so what I did was my students in my college level classroom, we read a lot of scientific research papers and I have them present those papers in class and on Flipgrid for a college audience. And so they're using a lot of technical jargony terms and that's fine because that's the audience they're going for. But ultimately, if they're going to be successful science ambassadors, they have to be able to explain that science in the absence of all of that jargon. And so what I did, I sort of reflected on my own science communication learning, like what were the most powerful moments for me? And I said, really, it was explaining my science as an ecologist to the seventh graders down the street. And so what I did was I put a call out over Twitter to other teachers that use Flipgrid. And I say, hey, does anyone want to learn about vertebrate anatomy? So I tried this with a vertebrate anatomy class. And we were, learn we were reading scientific research papers about giraffes and sharks and snakes and all of these things. And I just tried it. And I had a couple of teachers respond. I had a teacher in Florida respond and a local teacher here in Nebraska respond. And I told my students, all right, try to explain this research paper that you just read, that you just explained for me, try to explain that same research paper for a seventh grade classroom. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing watching my students sort of wrestle and struggle with, well, what are the most critical pieces of this study? What are the details that are most important to communicate? And what are the details that are less important to communicate? You know, what's the detail I can kind of ignore and gloss over versus what is a piece of information that I have to now interpret differently. Like I told them, you can show the students graphs, but a seventh grader might not be able to understand the graph from the paper. So maybe you have to redraw it. Maybe you have to explain it differently. And what was great was it exposed the K-12 classroom students to ideas and research they probably would have never gotten a chance to be exposed to under normal curricular circumstances. Using Flipgrid was great because the K-12 teacher could use those videos when it fit their classroom. That's, to me, the asynchronous part of Flipgrid that's so powerful. Whereas if I were to, let's say, Skype or Zoom into a classroom, we really have to, well, what's your schedule and what's my schedule and what time and what time zone are you in? And oftentimes those things don't match up. Whereas my students here could make a science communication video about a research paper, post it onto Flipgrid, and then Whenever the teacher feel, the K-12 teacher feels like they can fit it into their classroom, those videos are there as a resource. And now those seventh graders were actually wrote, excuse me, not wrote, they replied with some really great questions and some really great responses. And there were a number of students, seventh grade students who said, yeah, I'm now super interested in this topic. And to me, that's the, you know, we've won the game, right? When a seventh grader says, wow, I'm really interested in why a giraffe's blood pressure is you know, how a giraffe, when it bends down to drink water, how it doesn't blow its brains out because it's got such high blood pressure. So I had students asking, these seventh graders were asking questions about the genetics and evolution of, of jaws and sharks and mice. It was really amazing. And, and like I said, for my students, it showed me how deeply they understood the material because if they edited their videos the right way, if they sort of, and when I mean edited, if they if they chose the information in the appropriate way and explained it really well, now I could see that they deeply engaged with the paper, with the research. 
many times on the podcast before the phrase, the banking model of education has come up. And this is from Paulo Freire. And he talked about just, you know, being this fount of knowledge and we just pour this into their heads and then they, you know, regurgitate it. I don't know right. if you use the word regurgitate. That may be my word. But, but the the thing is that what I just said may not sound like such a bad deal to some educators where they see their role as, you know, let me just pour out my wisdom and, and that they may just think, well, what is wrong with that? Even if you didn't want to say that our students have much more capacity than just a regurgitator of information, even if you don't want to buy into that, that premise, you don't actually know that they have comprehended what you are teaching until you have them break it down to something like a seventh grader. And right. I, that's one of the really compelling things I used to have uh, regularly, I still do on my exams, write this explanation like you're talking to an eight-year-old. Right. And if you right. can't do that, you don't really understand it yet. And that's where you really can uncover some more opportunities for learning when you do break it down that way, have them do that to you. You can really help them truly have that deeper learning experience. Absolutely. And I, you know, I also reinforce with my students, especially around, you know, these ideas of science communication, I really hammer home this idea of, because when I present this idea to them about explaining these, to se- these, these research papers to seventh grade classrooms or fifth grade classrooms, invariably someone just on, by chance says the word, you know, says, oh, so we're dumbing it down. And I said, no, 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 we're not dumbing it down. Because what that implies is that, like you said, it implies some hierarchical intelligence model, right? That I'm this person and I'm going to pour information and I'm, you know, to my audience and they're not, they're not smart enough to get it. And I try to tell my students, I say, what you're doing is you're trying to explain the key pieces of information that are going to make, that are going to allow them to not only understand what the research was, but it's going to allow them to ask the next question. That's going to allow them to be curious. Mm -hmm. And so I think shifting that mindset from oh yeah, I'm just dumbing this down to, no, I'm just changing the vocabulary with which I explain these ideas is a really, really important piece of this. So I think of scientific jargon, I I tell my students this, that scientific jargon is really just verbal efficiency, right? I can come up with some, you know, like the word photosynthesis, right? That's really a much faster way of saying sunlight is turned into sugar by a plant, Let's call it photosynthesis because it's much easier to say. But if I just say, you know, sunlight is turned into sugar, we can understand that. And that's not me calling you dumb. That's just saying, I'm just going to use different words. And so that's, I think, is an important, especially at the, you know, sort of explaining, like you said, to an eighth grader, I think it's important to sort of get rid of that dumbing down mindset. Sometimes two people might use analogies I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going a little way out of my league here, but I'm pretty sure cognitive psychologists don't like when we use the analogy of the brain as a muscle, because I, th- I think that I'm remembering that right, speaking of using my own brain as a muscle. <laughs> so that if they were to use an analogy, you could see if it was an appropriate one, or if perhaps it represented some kind of a lack of understanding of how whatever mechanism it was that we were trying to describe or whatever process. Right, right. And, and, to me, that's where doing this process of explaining science to these seventh graders allows not only the science class 
the, the K-12 science classroom to gain something novel, it becomes a way for me to really, I don't want to say assess, but at least get a sense of how deeply my students understand this material. Yeah. There's one more context you have to share with us today about how you're using Flipgrid. And this is really how to help have more people engaged in STEM and specifically women and how to communicate our science. So would you share about that last aspect of Flipgrid we're going to talk about today? Yeah, yeah. So it's something called the Thousand STEM Women Project. And this actually came out of an interaction I had through Flipgrid with a K-12, with a sixth grade classroom in Rhode Island. So just by chance, via Twitter, I happened to connect with a science classroom in Rhode Island and the teacher asked, can you just, I'm trying to humanize scientists. So can you tell, can you make a Flipgrid video where you are explaining what type of scientist you are and two interesting facts that the students might not assume about you. So I did that. And then because I was, you know, at the time I was sort of discovering Flipgrid, I got in touch with the teacher. I said, why don't I put up a weekly sort of Flipgrid prompt for your students that they can, that's sort of open-ended and they, the students can reply. So I did this, I would put up these, these broad ecology open-ended questions, like how many plants does an ecosystem need to be quote unquote healthy? And so the students would reply. And by the end of that semester, I said, well, you've learned a lot about ecology. What are some other types of scientists you want to learn about? And the, the sixth graders replied with chemist and marine biologist and astrophysicist and meteorologist. And while that was great, what I noticed was most of who they were naming were scientists that you see on television. And as an ecologist, so I'm a plant ecologist, but specifically, I'm a plant ecosystem ecologist, which means I know a lot about a very small part of the world. And so when, when I talk to my other scientist colleagues, you know, we are hyper subdisciplinary. And that's something that I don't think K-12 classrooms really see. You're either a biologist or a chemist or, you know, a physicist. It's these broad categories. And so what I wanted to do is create a, a space where students could see or engage with all these various sub-disciplines of science. And there's whole sets of literature on particularly a lot of the challenges that female scientists face and the challenges that K-12 female students face, you know, that sort of you have what's called oftentimes the leaky pipeline where, where female students don't engage more deeply in science majors. And I'm by no means am I a, a professional in that literature, but I know those, I know those issues exist. And so I wanted to provide a space where role models, where female science role models could be seen and viewed and heard. And K-12 students could learn about new fields of science that go, that dig down deeper than biologist, physicist, or chemist. And so I made this project called the Thousand STEM Women Project via Flipgrid, where scientists submit a 90-second introduction saying, I'm a whatever, but they have to be really specific. So they can't just say, I'm a chemist. They have to say, I'm an analytical chemist. They can't say, I'm a biologist. They have to say, I'm a, a marine geologist. And so the student, the K-12 students learn about all these different fields of science that maybe they didn't realize existed. And by giving them that more nuanced view, by exposing them to me these more nuanced and nuanced sub-disciplines, I think it provides the K-12 students sort of an intellectual toehold. Like, oh, I didn't realize that was a thing. That's really the goal is I want the K-12 students to say, I didn't realize that was a thing you could do. And from a scientist perspective, it forces the scientist to say, well, can you sum up what you do in 90 seconds? 
for a seventh grade classroom, that becomes training for the scientist. So how do you explain your science without using a bunch of scientific jargon that may cause a seventh grader or another you know, K-12 classroom to disengage? So it becomes, I think, training for the scientist. And it also, my hope is that it is providing an avenue for K-12 students to see a more diverse set of scientific disciplines. We're about to get to the recommendations segment, but it did dawn on me that you and I are both so passionate about Flipgrid and are having such wonderful experiences using it. But something really cool happened, oh gosh, about a year ago or so, where Microsoft acquired Flipgrid. And so mm-hmm. now the thing I used to pay, I don't even know what I paid, $60 a year or something for Flipgrid. And now those pro features are available to all educators And one change that did happen with that is that it used to be that you could have any sort of a login, but now it does need to be either a Google login that you use or your Microsoft Office 365 login that you use. So it's a little bit of a barrier, but I haven't found it to be too much of a barrier because every institution I know of is either an Office 365 shop or a (laughs) or a Google shop or or at least the like. It's never been that someone couldn't get on. And any, right. and I teach you know a couple of different institutions, and of course doing the podcast. So I, I don't. It adds a little barrier just in terms of access, but to me a really small barrier, and one that is really nice though that we get all of these features. Right, right. And initially, I was a little hesitant or a little concerned about that, but I, I found the same thing. It's a it's a small barrier, and really the gains for that. I think the gains in student privacy and access are far outweigh the you know, a couple extra clicks that you need to engage with Flipgrid. So I was initially a little hesitant, but now it's not a problem at all. And it can be used within an LMS, or it also can be used as a standalone. And then there are settings you can do where how long of a response that they can make and are they allowed to reply to each other? Are you going to let people download the videos? There's a lot, like you said, lots of things that you, settings you can tweak to make it really fit your needs. Right. You know, I know I sound like I'm a big Flipgrid fanboy but you know when when we learned about flipgrid this was before the microsoft acquisition but we learned about flipgrid 72 when we started using it we learned about flipgrid 72 hours before the start of our semester and we had inter- and we were in the back end the admin side and to me this is actually the biggest pos- one of the biggest positives within 72 hours we we had it integrated into our class because the admin back end was so intuitive you know oftentimes a lot of the ed tech tools that are out there can be a little bit clunky on the back end and Flipgrid was so intuitive that we learned about it on essentially a Monday and we were ready to implement it on Thursday. So that was really great. Before we get to the recommendations segment, I wanted to mention that if you are a fan of this podcast, you might also like the Ed Surge On Air podcast. And that podcast is a weekly conversation about the future of education, featuring insightful conversations with educators, tech innovators, and scholars, hosted by Ed Surge's Jeffrey R. Young and Sydney Johnson. And Jeff and I decided that we should start sharing a little bit on our podcast that if you like this, you might just like the other podcasts. I hope you'll take a listen to Ed Surge On Air and get even more listening about how to, in that case, start to navigate the future of education and think more about our own teaching and uses of technology. 
this is the time now that we get to give our recommendations. And I wanted to share about a somewhat new product I purchased at my work, and it's called the Meeting Owl 360-degree video conference camera. People who have been listening for a while know that speaking of being a fangirl, I'm a huge fan of Zoom, the web conference platform. In fact, that's what we are recording on as we speak. And so anything that integrates with that, I'm really pretty intrigued. When I was at the Instructure Conference a couple of years ago, that's the people who make Canvas, I attended a session by a woman who teaches her and MBA programs using 360 degree cameras. And my only exposure to them had been in terms of real estate. If you want to go take a virtual tour of someone's house, you can move your mouse around and see all the way around a room. I hadn't really thought about it much in terms of teaching or collaboration in a work context. And well, that all changed with the meeting owl camera. So it looks, it's about the size of one of those smart speakers and it sits up on the desk and you can't really tell what it is at first because the camera is a very, very small little bubble thing that goes across the top. And how it integrates with Zoom is that if someone across the table from me began talking, then it activates the speaker and the microphone to be able to know to listen on that side of the table and also shifts the view of the camera on Zoom to show that portion of the camera. The, there's a strip across the top of Zoom where you can see the entire room in all of its 360 degree glory, but the bottom panel is adjusting constantly with who is speaking. And it's really pretty remarkable. It's so funny. Anytime now I have it in a room, if somebody just passes by a conference room and they want to see what's going on, I had a guest speaker come into my class that way from the Bay Area. It was really great to have her join us. It was very authentic. And then I had the funniest thing happen. So I was using it. <laughs> this does not happen to me very often. I was using it in a meeting and I finished the meeting and I went back just, you know, relaxing in my office and a guy said, Hey, could you have me join zoom in the next meeting? And I was like, what is he talking about? And I realized I had totally forgot I was supposed to be in a meeting. I'm already 10 minutes <laughs> late. <laughs> so I grabbed this thing. It's like the size, you know how babies, when they're really, really little, you can hold them just with one hand. So you right. can you can take the baby analogy or you can take the football analogy, which you could probably go with the baby more because I'm so not football. But I take it and I'm like running across campus. Like, like I just, I had such a comical vision of myself just with this, like, because I'm telling him like, Terrell, Terrell, I've got you. I've got you. I'm taking, he, he can't can't obviously hear me because it's not plugged in, but I just had this vision of like, I was going to rescue him and me and get us to this meeting, but it really is plug and play. So I just get to the meeting and everybody, of course, I interrupted on accident where they're like, what is that? That's so cool. How does it work? And get everybody plugged in and, and it's up and running in no time. It was really, really a cool That's experience. Cool. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they'll, they'll, it's, a, it's a $700 US device if you just buy one, but they'll have specials sometimes or if you buy multiple ones, if you're going to do it on a campus thing, which, you know, at most, I saw there's some $300 versions of other kinds of cameras, but I'm telling you, this is a really cool device. Got, it's got the thing figured out with the speaker and the microphone. It's really good. I think for whatever it's worth, I thought it was worth the extra money to really get this high quality of a device. So now it's your turn. What would you like to recommend today? A tool that I've just really started messing around with, I haven't dug into it completely, is Wakelet. Mm -hmm. um, so it's another ed tech tool where students can curate resources from all over the web. They can put in their own documents. They can put in tweets. They can put in videos. They can embed Flipgrid replies. And so 
students can build and curate their own content. And it's almost like we probably all on our web browsers have a list of you know websites that we favorited or documents that we favorited. And, then, and that list becomes obscenely long and unorganized. Wakelet allows you to almost curate these collections around certain topics. And so I'm trying to figure out how to use Wakelet in my classroom to allow students to sort of build and curate their own collections around topics like climate change and science communication. And so that I'm just starting out with that, but everything I've found so far has been great. It's been really easy to use. And so I'm excited to keep digging in even further to sort of have my students be the ones that are generating knowledge and almost building their own textbook. And because there's the ability again, to embed Flipgrid videos, I can have my students, for example, you know, they'll put a source in and I'll say, well, make a Flipgrid explaining why you think that source is valuable or why you think that information is good or bad, depending on what type of collection, what type of Wakelet collection I want, want them to build. So I'm just, I've just started out with that, but I'm pretty excited about it. Oh, it sounds amazing. I'm getting ready for some my, it'll be my first time I'm responsible for training our new faculty that are joining us in the fall. And I'm having so much fun thinking about ways that they can, just as you said, construct their own knowledge. It's not That's not an audience of people you want to try to just use the banking model of education right, for, right, for the week right. that I'll get to be in community with them. And this would be a fun way. I, I'm just curious, though, you said it's pretty easy learning curve for you, but also for your students, have they had a chance to try it yet? Or is it still too new? We haven't, I haven't tried it yet with my students. I have not deployed this. So, mm-hmm. so I'm going to try it in the fall semester. So who knows, it could fall flat on its face. But I've seen a lot of, again, through the Flipgrid community of teachers, uh, a number of them also work with Wakelet. And I've heard amazing stories of things working out. So the challenge I think for me is really trying to figure out how to structure the assignment, say, please curate a collection around topic X. And how do I assess the quality of that curation? That becomes, but assessment is always a challenge, right? (laughs) Um, As we all know. Well, this is perfect because I've so enjoyed our conversation. I've already learned so much from you, but it's going to be hard to say goodbye. So what a perfect thing to say until we meet again. You'll have to come back and tell us how it goes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that would be great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. It was awesome. What an energizing conversation with Ramesh Langani. Thank you so much for getting in touch and coming on the episode. Thanks to all of you for listening. One of the things that I hope goes without saying is even though we didn't specifically recommend Flipgrid in the recommendations segment, this episode is all about getting out there and giving it a try. I hope you'll go and visit the Thousand STEM Women Project. Have a look at those videos and You're welcome to use those videos in your own teaching or however else might be interesting for you to use them. And I hope you'll try out some Flipgrid in your teaching or in your own communities within the university. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.